Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. When financing or selling your business, one wrong move can crater a deal or be fatal to a company's future. Further, there's not a lot of solid information or education for entrepreneurs about high-stakes financings. Now with this interview, we hear from Brent Holiday, CEO of Garibaldi Capital Advisors. Brent and I dive into the world of financing and selling technology companies. What they do is put years of venture capital and advisory experience to work for their clients, and we get to hear some of the most valuable lessons he has. Now Brent gives us an excellent look behind the scenes of how companies are sold. He's tight-lipped about who the clients are, but that doesn't really matter. It's a knowledge that makes this such a powerful interview. And if you ever wondered about the value of an advisor, as in an investment banker or a business broker, listen to this episode. It will give you the firepower to separate the so-so advisor from an outstanding advisor who can ultimately help you finance and sell your business appropriately. I really believe the advice shared in this episode has the power to change an entrepreneur's life. It's the kind of advice that will help you or them avoid the value-destroying traps that can come up while financing or selling your company. Enjoy the episode. On the line, I'm very happy to have Brent Holiday. Brent, you're the CEO and founder of Garibaldi, and your focus is on advising technology companies for pivotal transactions of their existence. So uh, yes. I'm very happy to have you on. Well, thank you. Uh, yes, um, uh, we started Garibaldi Capital Advisors uh, six years ago uh, with the premise that Canadian technology companies were being underserved in the M&A advisory space because most uh, advisors in the market that we're in, in the market stage that we're in, are generalists. They do, uh, you know, sell manufacturing companies. They'll raise capital for, you know, an insurance services firm, and then they'll try and sell a technology company. And what I learned in my years of being a technology operator, being a, uh, a venture capitalist, and, and investing in early stage technology companies uh, is that, you know, there's a a form of xenophobia among the uh, technology entrepreneurs, which is if you don't understand my business, then I don't really want you to help me. Uh, and true enough, technology is different. Um, you know, your listeners will realize if they play in the stock market uh, that, you know, we talk multiples of revenue in technology and instead of multiples of EBITDA, it's a different business. It's a high growth, high change business. And uh, uh, so we thought that, you know, in order to deliver services for raising growth capital, you know, kind of 10 to 30 million, uh, or, or selling your business with an enterprise value between 20 and 100 million, that what you really need is you need somebody that understands the business. So we're all from technology. We, all of the principals, all of the transaction professionals 
at Garibaldi, you know, come from either the investment side uh, as venture capitalists or private equity in tech, uh, or from the operations side, uh, corporate development and or uh, CFO roles in technology companies, you know, or they or they come from investment banking itself, but for technology companies, and so uh, it's it's uh, that, that that's the message that we want to to send out is, you know, that we are technology first, technology knowledge, technology networks. That that's that's the kind of advisory shop that we are. You know, since we formed six years ago, there's a couple of others that have popped up that serve the same market. The amazing thing is that in the six years since Garibaldi started, with the incredible bull run that technology markets have been on in general, uh, we barely see them in any deals, and uh, uh, it's because there's just so much going on, and especially uh, you know in Ontario, Toronto is just absolutely on fire. Uh, so we started in Vancouver. I'm based in Vancouver. Uh, we have seven professionals here, but we have two on the ground in Toronto and call it two and a half because I'm there every two weeks. And uh, uh, we've, we started there a couple of years ago and now we've completed five transactions, five of our almost 30 now uh, completed transactions uh, that we've done in, in the past six years. There's no doubt from my, my background and experience at finance that the advisory work you do is a lot of work. Let's get into that because... A previous guest, Peter Lehrman with Axial.net said, when a CEO approaches a financing, it's a 1% of their time kind of event. They didn't build their company to finance it, or they haven't built a career on exiting or bringing in capital to their company. So when we talk about advisors, your role is there to help them through those events. Can you give us more color? What is, where does Garibaldi or any other advisor come in? Well, I mean, this speaks to the entire service industry, uh, you know, around growing a, a company. It doesn't matter if you're a technology company or any sort of company. Is if w- what you don't understand, you're smart. You're a CEO. You're very smart. You can figure it out. But why bother? There are experts over here that can do it. Yes, for a fee. But if you're laser focused on growing your business and you have a thousand things you have to do as a CEO or a CFO, uh, you know, you don't, you're not able to uh, uh, sit and learn uh, everything that you need to know about raising $20 million from growth equity providers worldwide. You also, you know, you've got good instincts and you've got great common sense and you understand what a deal looks like, but you don't have the creativity of hundreds and hundreds of deals to be able to put the right deal together for you. So you hire the lawyers, you hire the accountants, you hire the M&A advisors as those experts that can come in and like mercenaries work on a particular deal and and leave. But what they end up doing for you is extracting more value than you could possibly do by learning it all yourself. Uh, So that in a nutshell is why you would bother to hire an advisor in any capacity. But specific to to financing and M&A, and then, of course, the world that I know, which is technology, I, I talked off the top about how technology companies move so quickly. And change is everywhere. And nobody needs a, a better example in Canada than Research in Motion, mm-hmm. uh, now called BlackBerry, right? Um, they were a bigger market cap than, than RBC, and uh, a year and a half later, they were worth a tenth of that. Hmm. outmaneuvered and 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 outcompeted and that's the pace of change in technology so even even more so in the technology environment why would you take your eye off the ball why would you spend all the time talking to investors on the phone 
why wouldn't you let the experts go out and prepare you, your company in the right message for investors or buyers whom they talk to all day long? We, we talk to every growth equity investor in North America and most, mostly around the world uh, about technology companies in Canada. They phone us. They say, what's going on? You know, what, what's in your pipeline? Uh, we talk to buyers all the time in the context of doing deals. And what we say, uh, for instance, to a buyer, it says, I'm not interested in that particular deal. They say, okay, just give me 15 minutes and tell me what you are interested in. Because there are mm-hmm. many other technology companies here in Canada, and maybe I can point you to the one that, that you need. So what do, what do those conversations look like? You've got a, a list of buyers, you've got your Rolodex, and uh, well, hopefully a, a CRM, especially being a technology company or technology focused. <laughs> yeah. But, Rolodex is a little old. <laughs> yeah, of course, I, I know, but I just, you know, hey, I'm, I'm, well, we're of the generations that are still within the world of analog and now digital. So yeah, I'm true. sticking with it. Okay. <laughs> All right. But you've got the relationships there. What do those conversations look like with buyers? Well, uh, you know, once again, you're under a, if you're under a mandate and you've got, uh, uh, you know, a company that you want to sell, you have sat with the company, you've understood the company's uh, strengths and specifically value drivers, because what we want to do is maximize value. So, you know, if the company has a very high revenue growth rate, uh, it may not be profitable, let's say, which technology companies tend to do because they plow money back into uh, to growth. And, and, and that's the biggest factor they have is that they're grabbing so much market share and growing so rapidly. Uh, you know, the message has got to be about that. So the conversation uh, is very much an elevator pitch when you're talking to them in the context of selling a company with the goal to get them interested enough to go into a pre-LOI data room, which has some materials that they can chew on and, and get to know the company better, which of course we've helped the company build and, and has the right message in it as well, uh, and or to a management presentation uh, so that they will be able to tell the story themselves, which most entrepreneurs want to do. They don't really want me telling the story. They want to know and trust that I can tell the, the high-level messages and get people excited. So that's the conversation you have with buyers or investors whether it's, a, it's an acquisition or it's an investment, it's enough information, uh, the, the key messages to get them to the next step. Now, we also need to understand uh, and make sure that our rationale for talking to them is correct. We would have gone under an assumption. We assume that you company wanted to buy this company because you have a huge distribution channel and this technology uh, product added into your distribution channel is, 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 is going to uh, uh, really accelerate the revenue. That's why you want to buy it. So we've done all that rationale thinking ahead of time. So we have to test the rationale. So the mm. second part of the conversation is, did I get that right? Is this where you're going? If not, where are you going? And, and then test out a third thing that you never really know until you talk to a buyer uh, is, you know, are you guys crazy busy? So for instance, if you'd phoned Salesforce two weeks ago, you know, uh, and, and you wanted to sell a company to them, they might have honestly said, we can't do it right now. We're just swallowing this major, you know, $10 billion deal that we're doing. So there's a lot of things, a lot of information that you can glean. So you're giving information to get them excited about the opportunity. You're also pulling information back that's relevant to your client and, and the likelihood that this, this, is a, this uh, buyer is actually going to make a bid. How, how different does your narrative change between conversation to conversation? Because you make the example of perhaps this technology company would be a prime fit given the distribution network of one company. Mm-hmm. And it could bring value, but then 
plan B is is something else where perhaps it's not the same value there. You go in with the same value assumptions and the same same price, or do you adjust the narrative and adjust the price given the the potential buyer? Uh, the latter, for sure. You always adjust the narrative. So the, the buyer B might be actually far more interested in the product and the technology and the technology team because they have, they are far behind the other potential buyer in terms of that particular segment of the market. So it could be a technology sale as much as it's a, a, uh, uh, we like to call it an attach rate sale where, where, you know, you, you could take the product and attach it to what your uh, salespeople are selling in their master distribution channels. So you're, you know, it, it, it depends on the, the, the strategic, if you will. So those are the buyers that are companies that are public companies or they're big private companies that have established themselves in the market. So the Oracles, the Googles, the SAPs, the, you know, the Facebook, Microsoft, those kind of companies, and, and a whole tier below them of companies that you might not be as familiar with. Now, that's the strategic buyer. Each one has a different reason. It's the beauty of the, is in the eye of the beholder story. And if you can extract some of that strategic value on behalf of your client, uh, then you're going to get a win because the threat sometimes of, of the technology company we represent the threat of them being in the hands of the competitor is often another big driver uh, of value. And so you need to understand that. You need to understand the markets and you need to understand the nuances and be able to play that up when you have those conversations. Now, let me step back and say, you can't just pick up the phone and call Microsoft Corporate Development and say, hey, Pete, I've got a company to sell you because they have so many things coming at them so many opportunities, and then within their own strategic direction, doing reach outs along a theme of what they want to acquire. So you could get lucky and phone them up and happen to get the theme, but that's a needle in a haystack. The way that you must approach these big strategic companies is the company you're representing has to have a relationship with them already. That's preferred. There has to be a partnership, or there's somebody inside the organization that has championed this smaller company. In the, again, in the twenty to hundred million dollar enterprise value, they're not world-beating companies yet, so they have to have a relationship somehow, and, and and a representative or a champion that I can phone corporate development and say, you need to talk to Sandy over there who loves this company, and understand why this strategic fits there, and then let's talk about a deal. So that's the strategics. There is another massive pile of buyers out there, and it's private equity and private equity-backed companies. Uh, there is so much money sloshing around in the private equity world. Uh, you know, the last seven or eight years until this more recent IPO frenzy uh, in technology has been uh, dictated by massive private financings. Think Uber, WeWork, even way back Facebook. Uh, they were all funded to this unicorn. Uh, we like to call them in Canada, by the way, narwhals. Um, <laughs> it, 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 they, they, they were funded by private equity because there's so much money uh, available. So private equity uh, buyers are different than the strategics. The strategics need to see the fit. They need to understand the rationale. They need to, 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 to have that uh, reason to buy the company, not just based on its financial fundamentals. The private equity uh, firms are typically looking at buying companies in that twenty to one hundred million dollar range. That uh, you know they will assess almost to a woman or a man identically. So take business to business software as a service. 
there is a formula that all of these companies uh, use to assess whether what they're going to pay and whether or not they're interested. Hmm. And that formula has a series of, it's layered. It's not just how fast is your revenue go- growing. There's all sorts of layers of, of other attributes and you're scored on a scale on those attributes. So that is a very formulaic, almost mathematical uh, way to sell businesses today. Hmm. And it's, and, 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 and if you're a B2B software company, whether it's a vertical, like you're, you're serving, say, uh, uh, you know, a real estate tech vertical, uh, or you're more horizontal, you're, you're, you're a, a product, a software product that can be used across sectors. Uh, you know, the, the world is your oyster right now because so much money is chasing you. So the second you, you creep above 5 million in revenue, I guarantee it. And if you're listening out there, you CEOs, tech CEOs, you've been called by three dozen private equity firms, usually the same names. <laughs> and they are, they call you every three months and they see how you're doing. Mm-hmm. And, and then when you crest 10 million, they all want to come in and put their arms around you and say, Hey, you know, we should really have a conversation about, you know, either doing a control deal, uh, and using you as a platform, buying you outright and tucking you into another asset that they've already bought or, giving you growth equity so you can really accelerate your growth. Uh, and, and it's, again, very formulaic, very well understood. So, you know, Garibaldi, we play there, but we also play outside of that very frothy uh, area. We, pl- we, we do IT hardware. We do IT services. Uh, we even do uh, direct-to-consumer businesses. Uh, so we're, we're a little bit broader than just the B2B software, but my gosh, that's a hot space. Hmm. No kidding. No kidding. And there's Man, there's tons of questions that are popping up as uh, as we're going through this. No doubt that having an advisor on your side who knows these relationships, who who knows those formulas of of what certain people are looking for, plays in the favor of 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 those who are selling, or arguably would. When it comes to engaging an advisor, mm-hmm. uh, what should CEOs be looking for? What kind of due diligence should they do on you? Yeah. So the playbook for that is how experienced are they and how experienced is the team in the sector that you're in? So again, we we need to use technology because that's what I understand. So there are many firms that have done many more transactions than Garibaldi, but how many did they do in the technology sector? And then who, who are the people that really understand the technology world in that particular firm? If it's a firm like mine that only does technology deals, it's how many deals have you done you know, in my size range, right? Um, uh, you know, what I expect my value to be and how many uh, transactions and, and, and how are your networks in uh, the sector that I'm in? Um, now, we all can't be uh, sector experts in every single sector, but, you know, if we've done a couple of real estate tech deals, we happen to know <clears throat> real estate tech. If we've done a couple of uh, fintech deals, then we, we, we know who the buyers are and who's interested in that space. Uh, some of us advisors go way down into that slice and are completely specific to a small, small sector. Um, many of them are American firms because they have to sort of differentiate from the pile of technology investment bankers down there. And so, you know, you can find very, very specific slices of, uh, of advisors for, for, for your niche. You know, but the, the process of doing what do the, what do the realtors say? The real the realtors say, you know, hey, you need a realtor because it's the biggest transaction in your life. Well, you know what? Buying a 
a home for 800000 to $2 million might be a very big deal to a whole lot of people. But if you're selling a business for $50 million and, mm-hmm. it's, you know, and it's your entire, that's a different level altogether. So you really want to make sure of two things. They're competent, that you trust them, and then understand that it's going to be a roller coaster ride. It's going to take months. And where would you rather have that person? Would you like them calling in every week from San Francisco and not really being local? Or would you like them to be able to go into their office or them come to you uh, very quickly and have a conversation? For me, for Garibaldi, we want to be the best of both worlds. We have the networks and the knowledge uh, that any uh, you know, advisor would have in North America and also be local to our Canadian tech clients. That's why we're in Toronto and in Vancouver. Uh, so we can be, you know, uh, well within the range of, uh, uh, local, I guess, for Calgary, Edmonton, uh, and, and all of BC. And then, of course, Ontario, Quebec, uh, where there's a ton of activity. I gotcha. Now, timing. You say uh-huh. it's a roller coaster. What, what, what is the timing that uh, a management team should expect? What are, what are they going to be going through when they, when they sell their company or they go for a large financing? Uh, one of the things that we do is, is take a, a lot of the time of preparing uh, and the time of filtering investors and buyers to the real, to getting the tire kickers out of there. You know, those are where, uh, which is at the beginning of the phase of, of selling your business. Uh, that's where we can save time. But ultimately, the management team has to sell the business, right? And they, they have to be in front of the buyers. They have to, they have to talk to the, uh, the buyers. These aren't massive public companies with all sorts of public information. These are small private companies that need to tell their story. And so we are very high touch advisors at that stage because we have to, we have to understand the story. We have to put the materials together, get the messages together, everything that I've just, you know, talked about earlier. And then we have to work with them daily to help them understand what's going on in the process. Unfortunately, you know, they will have to spend that time. If we filter down to 20, 20 buyers that, that we say are not tire kickers, we've, we've assessed them, you know, these are good fits and here's why. Uh, that's going to be 20 management meetings and it's going to mm. take time. And then uh, you're going to get into the negotiation phase. And most of the management teams I've ever dealt with do not say, Hey, Brent, go away and get me the best deal. And I don't really want to know about it until you've got the paper ready. <laughs> most of these people want to be involved daily, if not in the meetings when we're having the negotiations. Mm. Uh, uh, yeah, we prefer to lead, uh, but, but if they want to be there, they can be there. So, uh, you know, that would be an involved process. And then the worst of it, the absolute worst of it, there's no way around it, uh, is the closing. So you've got your deal, you like your deal, now you're closing the deal. Closings take 30 to 90 days, depending on the complexity of the deal, depending on how competitive your process was. Meaning, if you did not have a competitive process, if you only said, I only want to sell to one buyer, I guarantee you, you're going to end up with a 90-day close because they're not really in any sort of rush. Mm. <laughs> so, but if you have a competitive threat and you can shorten that exclusivity window and push the closing to go faster, uh, that's really uh, comes down to you've created that tension and that competitive tension to, to get the deal done quicker. However, in that time frame, the management team, most notably the CFO, gets pummeled because the, the confirmatory due diligence phase is every contract, you know, that, that's ever been signed. It's every 
uh, it's down to the leases, it's employment agreements, it's every legal document that was ever created is analyzed and reviewed. And the tax and the accounting, uh, they, you know, many of the big public companies and big private equity firms effectively re-audit you uh, mm-hmm. in that in that time frame. Uh, so so the amount of time in a closing, and I can tell you to every single CEO that has gone through the closing, they said, man, that was a lot of work. I did not think it would be that much work. And there's nothing that we can do. We don't know where everything is as the mm-hmm. advisors, unfortunately. So we shepherd, we push, we, we uh, cajole, we try and get the, the uh, people performing the diligence to move faster. You know, we manage the, the, the data room. We do all of those things to help try and get it done. But ultimately, it's up to the company to do it. And it's painful. Yeah. And then, yeah. But then you come out the other side and hopefully there, there's nothing's been found in that confirmatory due diligence process that would have them readjust their pricing because that's a disaster. And number one is performance of the company through that entire time frame. And what did I just tell you? The CEO that wants to be engaged in every meeting and every negotiation, and then there's a closing, that's, that, that could be four months where their eye is not on the company. And if the performance of the company starts to take a hit as you're going through that confirmatory due diligence, you know, it could affect price. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a tough slog. Uh, we try and take as much off the hands uh, uh, you know, of the management team as we can. But at the end of the day, you, you, you got to get through it. And uh, confirmatory, confirmatory due diligence is, is, is awful. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. So you made, you made mention of the negotiation process. And, yep. you know, whether the, the management team CEO wants to be in the room or not, if they're willing to, to let you take it on, what do those negotiations look like? Take us through them. So, uh, you know, you know, going in uh, as the advisor uh, and you keep checking all the way through what the board, uh, you know, in the case of a company that has a properly functioning board representing all shareholders or what the f- you know, single owner or, or, or couple of owners in a bootstrapped company or angel back company where they, they have the majority, uh, if not all of the company, you're, you're, you, you have to understand where their points are. What is it that they're looking for? Um, sometimes it's not the best, the, the highest price that wins the deal because the structure of the deal is, is really as important. Uh, you've heard of earnouts, which is another word for contingent consideration. Uh, you know, they're to be avoided at all costs, but sometimes they're unavoidable because the price that the entrepreneur wants or that the board wants is high, is higher than the buyer is willing to pay. So they structure it that way. Fine. We'll give you this much at close, but you know, we don't want to take all the risk that you're going to achieve this very steep plan after we buy you. So you're going to share in that risk and we're going to pay you the rest of that value uh, only if these things are achieved. Nine times out of 10, those are never achieved and it ends in disaster. I was going to uh, say we could probably do an episode there's just a whole on our notes. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or if not a book. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yep. No, I'm uh, you know, uh, sadly involved in a lawsuit where uh, a, a company made all the promises. We wrote them down in the share purchase agreement and then they failed to adhere to any of them and none of the earn out was earned. And so now that entrepreneur has gone after the company and that's just a horrible situation. No right? kidding. Yep. So, so avoid them at all costs if you can, uh, but be prepared if you're, if you're reaching for the sky in terms of valuation that, that, that buyers will sometimes have to structure it so that it, it works for them as well. So the negotiations are really 
uh, around the, the, not just the price, but what other terms are in there. In an M&A deal, it, it, when you do an investment, uh, uh, there's not as much creativity because investments into companies, you know, there's a price, there, there, there are terms within the, um, uh, the preferred shares, if that's what's being offered or, or, or asked for. Uh, for sure, there are many, many things in there and many gotchas that you have to be aware of. Uh, but there's not as much deal creativity there as there is when you're exiting. And you can, there are many, many different ways to structure a deal. So when you have that encyclopedia of many ways to structure a deal in the back of your head, as an as a experienced advisory team should have, then you can come, again, come up to a problem in negotiating an LOI and even post LOI and say, you know what, why don't we try this and, and, and uh, come up with a different solution that solves the problem that you're trying to get to. And if it's a valuation gap, there's ways to solve it. If it's a, a contingent consideration gap, there's ways to solve it. If it's a, uh, you know, uh, transition with the management team, uh, there's 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 many ways to solve that too, so there's uh, uh, just a lot more creativity there, and that's where you know advisors are are I think crucially important. Your 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 very experienced M and A lawyer is going to know all of those tactics as well, but your very experienced M and A lawyer doesn't typically negotiate all the business terms in the deal, doesn't typically work with a spreadsheet at all, and and, and uh, more times than not can't uh, you know. Um, do a proper waterfall, which is when you've got layers of shares uh, over time, say if, you, if you're backed by venture capital firms, you know, a waterfall is the interpretation of what happens at what price uh, or equity value, and then how that all falls down through preferred shares, through dividends, through <laughs> down of to the course, company, right? And, and uh, uh, we are definitely experts at that. Uh, we've we've dealt with some of the most complex waterfalls, I think that have ever been created, uh, and so you know there there's just a lot of things that the you know the advisor brings to the table with with experience with knowledge to help you get the right deal negotiated. Do not go into a David and Goliath scenario where you know you you have never completed a deal or you've done one or two in your whole life and you're going against an army of corp dev. Uh, people in a public company that would just be suicide yeah, uh, talk about eat you alive right yep yep no it's you you've got to have the experience at your side that comes to the next question i wanted to ask of what are the common mistakes you see ceos and management teams making when going into transactions or financings the first and biggest mistake that naive uh, meaning haven't done it before CEOs make when somebody comes to them is they, how do you put it? They, they only hear the happy talk. They only hear the positives. They don't, uh, they don't think about what's not being said. Uh, the number of times I've had entrepreneurs call me up from relatively small companies uh, and say, oh, so-and-so is going to buy us. It's okay. Okay. Whoa, 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 step back. Do you have a piece of paper that says they're going to buy you? Well, no. Okay, so you've had a verbal conversation that they're going to buy you? Uh, well, no. Uh, it turns out the business development guy said we should buy you. And suddenly they're, they're being bought by company you know, XYZ. And even in situations where they have gotten down the path and they've now had a conversation with corporate development, the CEO of the other company, and they have you know, had dinner with them and said, you know, the only thing that makes sense is for us to buy you. you know, and the, the, it's not real until it's written down on a piece of paper in a fulsome letter of intent. 
not a little tiny letter that says, we intend to buy you, you know, please let us go exclusive for 90 days and then we'll tell you the price. That's a disaster. Don't ever mm. sign those. Uh, so I guess you can sum it up by saying the simple term to, that I say to CEOs, remember this, buyers are liars. So they are going to you know, warm up to you as best they can. They're going to tell you, they're going to give you all the platitudes. They're going to tell you, you know, how wonderful you are. And they're going to try and have you avoid hiring an advisor and running an auction. And they're going to do everything they can to get you under that exclusivity and then rip you apart to see if they really want to buy you. And, uh, and then they could have said, even they could have even put a price down. Some are a little less, uh, uh, let's say, how, how should we put it? The moral compass isn't quite uh, aligned and they will even put a price in front of you and get that exclusivity and get you all excited and then get under the hood and actually, and then come back and retrade on you and say, ah, mm-hmm. well, 80 million. Oh no, no, no. We're, we're actually going to buy you for 40. And here's why. So you have to have that skepticism and you have to have that paranoia and just keep saying to yourself, buyers are liars. And until you get that piece of paper signed, until you get that money in the bank at the end of the closing, you have to have a healthy degree of skepticism as to, uh, we've been, we've been in situations negotiated, no changes from the LOI, ready to close and the buyer disappears. Uh, And (laughs) you phone them up and they tell you something and then it it turns out they're being bought or, and they could have told you that, but they never did. Mm. Uh, You know, uh, they'll say, oh, well, we, we were under confidentiality. We couldn't tell you. Well, so we went, down this path, we spent four months and you knew there was a very good chance that you were going to get bought and, and that this would completely disrupt our process. You could have told us something. <laughs> no kidding. So, so again, you know, you, you, until it's finally across the line, until it's closed, and until that wire has happened, maintain that skepticism. So that's what I say is that I think that many CEOs get whipped up in, into believing everything the buyer is telling them. And that's, a, that's just a, a, the most common mistake. I love that. Buyers are liars. What a, uh, <laughs> that's that's going to be the headline of this episode. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. Now, when, when going and, and marketing your company, how do you build deal tension? And I think it stands for both a, an exit or a, or a wholesale of a company or a financing, but Absolutely. how do you effectively build deal tension? So the the most effective way to do it is to manage a process that gets everybody lined up on the same timing. Uh, yeah, I was a venture capitalist for 12 years. At the VC stage, the Series A stage, there's very few intermediaries doing deals. Uh, so put it another way, companies that are around a million dollars to $5 million in revenue that are trying to raise their sort of first institutional round don't typically hire advisors. And and I'm not I'm not... Uh, advocating that they do. I think at that stage, you really do have to sell yourself to VCs, but you can do yourself a favor and try and run a process like we do at the growth equity stage, which is, you know, a more mature company raising 10 to $30 million. You, you have to um, prepare all the materials and approach all the, they're calling you all the time, right? And you just put them off, put them off, put them off uh, and uh, get to the point at which you're ready to go to market. And again, at the Series A stage or, or with us running the process at the Series B or Series C stage for these tech companies, it would be 
go and talk to them all at the same time. Here's the executive summary. Here, you know, here's the you know simple data room with some information that will uh, release to you after an NDA. Uh, and then you know, here's the timing on the meetings. If you stick to the process, what happens is everybody knows you're in the process. They all know that they're competing. They all know that they're in an auction, and that none of them feel like they're out front. That's the way to manage tension in any process, whether it's technology or any process. Is to is and, and so that discipline when you are running a company is hard to do, and that's why outsiders running it for you who can filter out the, the tire kickers and get you to the. Uh, you know, to the to the really meaningful investors or buyers, uh, you know that that is certainly worth your time to have the process run for you. But in any case, the biggest driver of tension is just that every single investor, every single buyer, knows that somebody else is looking at the same information they they have, and could be a threat to them, could be competitive, and 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 a big mistake that CEOs do. This is. Absolutely classic because they are uh, they, they they sell things for a living. They sell their product. They sell their services. So when you're in the process of of, of going through the stages of selling to acquire a customer, the last thing you want to do is lose the lead or lose you know you know timing kills deals. Time kills deals. It's the same when you're selling a product. Same when you're selling a company. You want to keep everything moving. But the, there's a big difference between selling a product to a customer and selling your company. And that is that you're pushing at the customer. You're trying to get them to buy this thing. Whereas the buyers and the investors, they want to buy you. They want to invest in you. And that dynamic is always lost on the CEO. Mm. So they get, they don't want to lose an investor. They don't want to lose a buyer. And so they treat them very differently. And, and, what we come in and say is, no, 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 no. You're the pretty girl at the dance. They want you. This is not their timeline. They keep asking you for stuff. Why are you giving it to them? Right. <laughs> Don't bend over backwards for exactly. these guys. Exactly. No, yeah. I know. You, you think you're trying to sell a customer, so you'll bend over backwards to sell a customer. No. No, 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 no. Wrong. <laughs> so, so actually, some playing hard to get. Exactly. You're, you're, you, you are uh, you know, the pretty girl at the ball. You just turn your back on them and watch how fast they run up the stairs and try and catch you. And it is very important to understand it's so hard for these CEOs that grow up selling to understand that they can turn their back and go back to their timeline. And that buyer and investor, even though they might wail and say, you know, uh, you know, if you don't do this, uh, I'm not interested. Nine times out of 10, they'll come back. Hmm. The, the, the emotional discipline it would take there for, uh, for an entrepreneur to turn their back. Especially what you know, tor moving towards a, a very significant financial event is uh, okay. Now, man, layer, gotta... now, layer on top of that, that maybe that buyer is already a strategic partner of yours, mm. and they're saying they want to buy you. And how do you do that? How do you turn your back on them and not piss them off? Because if they don't buy you, then wait a minute, that's my strategic partner, I need them. And once again, that's where you need the bad cop or the advisor, the mercenary. <laughs> if we're there to sell the company then we can step in, we can have the difficult conversations, and we can protect the relationship from the CEO has with the buyer. And that's because after the transaction's done or not done, we're not in the picture anymore. So it's really important, again, uh, in those situations to have an advisor who can be that intermediary. I see. Yeah, that's the, uh, as well as being a, a coach in that. 
good cop, bad cop, but then the coach there to 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 help coach them through those those moments. We have we have many shirts we wear. We wear the coach, we wear the referee, and we wear the counselor. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. <laughs> I would wow. say in a, in a transaction, we are uh, you know. We're, we're refereeing, but I mean, we referee within companies between, you know, stakeholders that are, you know, have very different reasons or, or levels at which they want to sell the company. We definitely don our referee shirts within uh, uh, the companies. And then, uh, you know, the, uh, I, I would say a third of my job in a transaction is counseling. It's late night conversations with the CEO who is, or the owner uh, of the business who is apoplectic about how the the diligence call went today and whether or not uh, you know they're going to lose the deal or they're mad at the way they're being treated by so and so the roller coaster I set off the top is there and so we have to you know uh, as advisors spend a lot of our time and draw on our experiences and tell the stories and say you know this happened before uh, you know calm down. Um, uh, and it, it is, it's, 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 it's such a big event in the lives of these, uh, founders and entrepreneurs or, uh, you know, or boards with multiple stakeholders, uh, because they're private companies. They're not, again, not big public companies with billions of shareholders. Uh, you know, it's a very emotional event. And so, uh, yeah, we do a lot of counseling. Hmm. It, within all the years of experience from I mean, leading Garibaldi now to your your history in uh, venture capital, and there has to be a few stories, a few career defining deals uh, that you have. You got you got anything you can share there? Uh, y- yes, but I have to, you know, you can you can change the names, protect, protect the innocent, the names, right? We uh, exactly. I mean, we I have signed so many NDAs in my career, uh, <laughs> um, but but you know. Uh, anecdotally, I think that there are many stories of the almost wins that vaporize, like I alluded to earlier, uh, where we couldn't help ourselves as the advisors. We thought the deal was done too. We we got fooled by the non uh, 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 that they, they, they didn't tell us what was going on, and those are tough because you're supposed to be the expert with all the experience and. <laughs> And you're guiding them towards a close. And, you know, sometimes, you know, stuff happens and, uh, uh, you know, your buyer gets bought. We've had that happen twice where we've been at the 11th hour, legal's completed, uh, very happy entrepreneurs with the, with the price and the negotiations and the deal. And the buyers walked because they suddenly weren't calling the shots anymore. You know, those are tough, tough uh, situations. And it's just, again, it, it kind of hammers home the point that you can't buy your beach house until the deal is actually done. And, uh, and, and sometimes we even got guilty of that because we couldn't see any signs that there was anything wrong. So we are natural skeptics even more so uh, the later you get in your career doing this. So, so you know, I think other, uh, the, on, the, on the happier side, what we love doing is we love making the, the, the transaction the life-changing event that it should be. So we, by definition, we work in the kind of that 20 to $100 million range in, in enterprise value on a sale. We don't do a lot of VC-backed deals when we sell because, you know, typically they enter at, you know, 15, 20, 25, $30 million 
post money, if I'm selling a company for $50 million, it's venture backed, then something's gone wrong. Mm-hmm. They're looking for the big, big exits. Yeah. Um, something's gone pear shaped there. Right. And so those are not as happy exits because there's that waterfall we talked about earlier. And, uh, you know, the common shareholders, the original angels are getting crushed and they're not getting the returns that they expected. There's happier deals that we do, we prefer to do uh, along the lines of, you know, full sales for there was a gentleman uh, recently and uh, three or four transactions ago. And, you know, he was at retirement age and uh, uh, this was it. This was his whole retirement. And we ran a very tight process to get him what he wanted. His expectations weren't through the moon. Uh, so it actually encouraged the competition. And we got uh, a price that he wanted with a buyer that he liked. And he walked away extremely happy, set up for the rest of his career. And most importantly, protected the, the, the 40 or so employees that he had in a, in a way that where he could have taken more money from another buyer, but this buyer was going to leave that team intact, give them uh, good contracts with options in their company, uh, and continue to grow the business that he had built. Those are the happy stories. And that uh, and- becomes part of, part of the negotiation as well. I oh, mean, absolutely. It's not just price. It's not just due diligence and, and uh, your pipeline and, and so on. I mean, you get down to the nitty gritty, like, the, like you're saying, though, that the options for the employees who have helped build the company from the ground up. This particular entrepreneur who uh, owned a majority but voted the rest of the share, so basically the whole company, he, um, in one particular uh, interview with a private equity buyer, uh, which was an, you know, a, a Zoom meeting or a go-to meeting, ended up breaking down, talking about his team, about how important it was that they be taken care of. And I phoned the buyer afterwards and, and I said, have you ever had that happen? And he said, nope. <laughs> 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 First, wow. <laughs> you know, like, like the passion that he has for, he says, I got it. I get it. Like the number one thing is going to be about, you know, how the team is treated. Uh, so yes, there are different drivers in every deal. Wow. Man, so many places we could go here. I wanted to, uh, to be respectful of time with you there. But when coming to engage somebody like you, advisors, what should these management teams be looking for? Not in the sense of, of the, the track records in history, but more from an economic side. How do fees work or how should they work? Uh, well, they should work in that we're aligned, um, meaning uh, on a capital raise, you know, we get paid a percentage of the capital being raised. So, uh, you know, we're encouraged to to get you your target capital. And in, a, in an M&A scenario, to be paid a percentage of uh, the enterprise value so that we're going to maximize that enterprise value for shareholders. It's not perfect alignment because as we just talked about, you know, the deal might not, the, the enterprise value might not be as important. So the last thing you want is a, is a again, a, a a poor moral compass uh, advisor encouraging you to do a deal uh, that is going to maximize his or her fee as opposed to get you what you want, but generally aligned in that people do want more value for their business. Uh, so, so that's how it typically works. Uh, if it's a full process where there's the preparation phase and the marketing phase and the negotiation phase and the closing phase, typically we take uh, monthly fees uh, up front that are small compared to what we would get paid on success. So we are, we're a, a very, very high commission based, uh, operation. 90% of our revenue comes from success fees. Mm-hmm. And so if we don't close deals. We don't have any money. And 
uh, as my wife uh, likes to ask me at you know January of every year, how much money will you make this year? I say I have no idea, <laughs> and I truly don't uh, yeah. because there's uh, uh, you know the the principals in Garibaldi are also in turn paid on those commissions. So there's no there, <laughs> we are therefore hungry to be able to you know get deals done, and we want to get them done. So we 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 want to get them closed uh, so that we get paid, and that generally is a good thing because that may, you know, we're driving them to close faster, uh, you know, not let the buyers drag their feet, uh, it try and get the, uh, you know, the, the, the legals done faster because lawyers get paid by the hour. So mm-hmm. it could take a year to close and they wouldn't care. Uh, but, but, uh, you know, not us. And that gives you the, the impetus to keep pushing and keep that deal on and not let time get in the way. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Hey, can we talk about the, the future of a capital advisory and the trends you're seeing right now? Um, yeah, sure. Uh, so it really, it, we're called investment bankers sometimes, and that's really it, at, at our level, the wrong term. Uh, investment banking, you know, is actually has a sector or a sub-segment of it is corporate finance, doing M&A transactions or capital raising. Uh, when you think of investment banking writ large, it includes public company underwriting. It includes, you know, uh, you know, valuation opinions. It includes, it includes, you know, doing transactions yourself, uh, you know, managing, uh, uh, you know, the, the balance sheet of like, if you think of Goldman Sachs, right, doing big transactions themselves. Um, so, you know, investment banking at the very, very high end, uh, you know, the, the markets are good right now in technology. Uh, the IPO market is back. Uh, so in the short term, it's very, very good. These are great days. The short term trend right across the stack from the, you know, lower mid market where we are to kind of the mid market up to the bulge bracket is, is that M&A is on the rise, uh, for a couple of reasons. Private equity needs to put their money to work. And, um, if growth is going to slow, uh, you know, thanks to tariffs and, and whatever, uh, if global growth is slowing, CEOs are looking out strategically and saying, in order to manage and continue to grow, to manage the, the growth rate, which is why we're valued on multiples of revenue as technology companies, we're going to have to, if we're not going to get there organically, we're going to have to acquire. So I see that the next couple of years, there's going to be more M&A activity as the growth does slow overall in the economy uh, uh, to, you know, to help manage that growth. Uh, so, so, you know, kind of short-term trends, I see that long-term. You know, it's, this is a tough business, especially in this lower mid-market where we are, as I've told you about all the trials and tribulations and how many hats we actually wear, like as counselor, as, uh, mm-hmm. as referee, um, as, you know, message maker. Uh, it's hard to disintermediate that, right? This, is, this isn't something that is, you know, uh, uh, you're not stamping out a whole bunch of these transactions. We historically have done four to five a year, and now we're on pace to do kind of eight or nine a year. You know, I think I think we're pretty safe in our business of, of uh, uh, and in our markets in terms of uh, uh, providing the services we we provide. It's 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 hard to get deals done where we are, uh, and so it it actually keeps a lot of people away. Uh, the 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 larger investment banks above us don't want to come down and do these deals because the deal risk is too high. Hmm. So you know we we like where we live, we understand it, we think we have some lean operations that allow us to live here uh and 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 deal with uh uh that higher uh deal risk but 
you know, long term, I think the uh, the high touch, the the personal uh, uh, part of this is uh, is why uh, we're going to survive as uh, as advisors in this space. Uh, what do you see with representing Canadian companies, and I, I would imagine oftentimes U.S. buyers or international buyers? How do uh, Canadian companies stack up in the uh, the level of technology, the level of where are they on the on the playing field? Well, you know, I can tell you, it's been quite an arc. Uh, you know, Twenty five years I've now been in tech and finance, uh, and uh, uh, you know, from ninety four when I would characterize Canada's technology industry as uh, as as adolescent at best <laughs> in the in the nineties to to now, uh, it's been an incredible ride. You know, uh, the you know going way up high in terms of you know what what Canada. What you need to be a healthy uh, uh, technology region is really kind of three legs to the stool. You need talent, you need innovation or ideas or, or, or intellectual property, and you need capital. And if if you got to imagine that stool in perfect balance to have a really thriving uh, technology industry, because if any if any of them are out of balance, it all falls apart. And so at various times in the last 25 years, we've been starved for capital. So the stool was falling apart or we've been starved for talent uh, and the stool was falling apart. And of those three things, if you think about it, the easiest to move is capital. Capital yeah. can come in a, in a heartbeat as soon as there's opportunity. Talent, hard to move. And, and Canada's you know, been in the technology industry, a branch plan economy. It's been company grows up to be, you know, $10 million in revenue gets bought. Uh, and so we weren't creating those anchor companies and, and developing that talent. So engineering talent, without a doubt, CEO, entrepreneurial, you know, uh, innovative thinking, no problem. The middle part, the, the, the guts of it, product management, uh, you know, expert global you know, product management capability, and then sales and marketing capability were where we've traditionally been been lean, and I would argue we still are. Uh, um, and then, of course, uh, innovation and ideas and IP. Well, you know, that's your universities, that's your, you know, accelerators, incubators, that's your that's your big anchor companies that I talked about, spinning off world class people to restart new businesses. Uh, so, Canada now has, uh, despite my you know, previous uh, disparagement of uh, of RIM, I can tell you, uh, uh, you know, Waterloo might have gone for a, a a bath there for a while, but you know, Vancouver's never had a, a global technology company emerge mm. out of Vancouver. We've had a whole bunch of small successes, uh, so I would kill to have a massive failure like RIM have happened here in in Vancouver because look what's happening now. You know, the first ten thousand people that came into Black uh, RIM uh, are gold. They went on a ride to create a, a an absolutely global globally dominant technology company. Maybe the last ten thousand that were hired there, not so much. But <laughs> those first, first ten thousand, like wow, you know, yeah. at every level they learned best practices. They learned how to do it, uh, and you can see that happening now. And that's partially why Toronto's on fire and Waterloo is on fire in terms of startups. So, you know, I, you know, to, to to sum that up, Canada is viewed now as extremely competitive. In a bunch of different sectors, uh, it's uh, you know uh, affirmed, if you will, that that engineering talent and capability, uh, and also that innovation capability. Uh, what what will separate us? What will keep that stool flat <laughs> and in balance 
uh, is if we continue to acquire talent or grow talent from within that are coming out of the new generation, the Shopify's, the Canaxis, the Lightspeed's, you know, and that'll spin out into and spill out rather into the, uh, uh, you know, into the ecosystem and, and, and help the next company get there faster, right? Mm. You just mentioned Shopify, and this, this question popped into mind out of that is, what's your take on then going public on the TSX as opposed to taking large venture dollars or, um, or more venture dollars and kind of doing the, the typical private thing until they're huge and to so, do some form of NASDAQ IPO? So, you know, I'm not a public market expert, uh, but, uh, you know, Shopify did the dual listing, I think. I think they would did NYSE and... and okay, TSX yes, yeah, correct. Yeah. Lightspeed just did the TSX. Um, I know other companies are lining up to go just on the TSX. And what I'm told by my public underwriting friends is the TSX is sick and tired of uh, blockchain and cannabis companies. <laughs> and, and that, uh, you know, public institutions here are, you know, loved... Shopify, loved Lightspeed, loved Canaxis. Where's the next one? Um, maybe didn't love, you know, Real Matters as much. It didn't perform as well. But where's the next one that's going to go out on the TSX? And, 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 and I'd rather do that into a growing and profitable technology company, uh, you know, than I would uh, into yet another cannabis company. Yeah, I, I hear you on that. And well, you definitely have the, the uh, technology focus there to, to side with that. I have one more question um, mm-hmm. before we'll, we'll aim to wrap or two more questions, if you don't mind. This is something I should ask early on, but when you mention the metrics of measurement, mm-hmm. uh, when, we, when you're talking tech deals, you, mm-hmm. you say, you know, you don't measure as a multiple of EBITDA, you tend to measure as a multiple of revenue. What are the metrics? What are the rule of thumb metrics you guys use to, to help value companies? And, and you often hear them thrown around of, oh, five times this. Well, you know, where, where should we be at? So, I mean, there's two layers to that question is kind of like, uh, how do you explain this to people who run businesses that get measured on, on EBITDA? Cause they look at you funny when you say multiples of revenue. Um, so, uh, and the second part to that is then, then why, why are they, uh, so the simple answer is growth. And, and I think I talked about it earlier. Technology is characterized by its, its rapid pace of change. So, you have opportunities in the technology markets appear and disappear very rapidly. How many, uh, you know, how many years ago was it that every e-tailer in the world was getting gobs of money because they were growing at ridiculous rates? Uh, and now, where is Beyond the Rack and Shop.ca and mm-hmm. Build Direct and Guilt Group and One King's Lane and all of them? that window closed because it became apparent that selling other people's stuff was not as profitable in an online model. But there's a new generation. The new generation is digitally native brands. These are uh, brands that have uh, don't sell through any stores, have stayed digital, but have found a niche. And there's Article and, and Rove in the furniture category in, uh, uh, in, in Vancouver. There's, you know, oh, I guess writ large, there's Harry's Razors. You know, there, these are these that's the next generation. That's where it's, it's emerged. So right now that's hot, but will it be again in two years? The reason I tell those anecdotes is because you've got to understand these opportunities, these market sizes and everything else that look so massive and so big and get a ton of investment and then close <laughs> for whatever reason are why uh, the volatility exists in the tech market and the growth. But when those markets are open and how fast these companies can grow, is why they get multiples of revenue. 
Hmm. Like a, a current client I have, which I can't really disclose much about, has grown uh, in the last four years, uh, 12, 19, 31, 60 in revenue. Hmm. And funnily enough, because it's in a certain part of the industry, that growth, uh, which should be valued, if that was a software company, it would be valued at 10 times revenue. But it's not a software company. And the investors don't understand it because they're not used to companies growing that fast. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so uh, you know, uh, the reason, the basic reason is growth. It's, it, it, com- companies in technology have the opportunity to grow incredibly fast. And they, they therefore uh, plow all their dollars. If you're the CEO and you're going to get valued on growth, are you going to maximize your EBITDA? No. You're going to turn around and you're going to plow every dollar. And you're going to be at break even or worse, and you're going to plow every dollar in. And if the investors are going to give you even more money, so you can lose more money and plow every dollar into growth because growth is what is valued. So as long as the stock markets, uh, you know, go that way and value you on growth and, you know, high, high gross margins, then that's what you're going to do. And you're going to spend a lot of money on sales and marketing to continue to grow. So that's, that's the basic reason. Now, uh, you know, again, (laughs) the volatility uh, is, is there. It can look like a massive growth market and five years later, it can be a desert. And so, so with that, I mean, each, each industry in itself, even with tech companies, I mean, they're getting their own, their own uh, metrics or their own valuation mm-hmm. metrics put against them. Yep. The one thing I think is a bit of a fallacy that, that often happens, somebody said, well, you should, get, you should get seven times revenue for your company. And then... Oh. But what's the background for that? And all of a sudden, somebody's locked in on that number. So uh, we bankers are guilty of that. I just called myself a banker. M&A advisors, <laughs> we're guilty of that, right? From, from my level all the way up to Goldman Sachs. Why? Because we go in and tell companies what they're worth based on what other people sold for or what other people are trading in public markets. In other words, the, the, the main source of valuation uh, in the technology markets is like I'm an agent for a baseball player. I walk in and I say, he batted this, he did this, he did this many RBIs, and that guy over there is paid 24 million, and my stats are the same as his, uh, just slightly better, so I want 25 million. And that kind of mentality is pervasive across the technology markets. And that leads to this dangerous phenomenon. Now, we advisors will then underneath will layer all the metrics that uh, matter, right? Not just revenue growth, but everything else that matters to investors or buyers. And we'll show you where you are on the benchmarks relative to, to the averages in the market. And if you are consistently below, then we're going to take your multiple down. And we're going to say, this is why you're not going to be viewed as the average multiple in the market today. Because you, your, your revenue growth is this, your gross margins are too low, your, your customer acquisition cost is too high. You know, and will adjust accordingly and say, this is how buyers and investors are going to look at you. So you're not worth seven times to, the, to that you know, uh, entrepreneur that, that we've made up here. Um, but the, 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 um, a friend of mine's in the mining markets, and he said, um, he said the, 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 the biggest thing that was pervasive in mining markets was he called it closeology. Oh, yes. So if, you're, if you stake the claim close to that very rich mine, then therefore you must be worth a ton of money. Uh, it's, it's, it's similar in technology. Um, I get, again, the, 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 
the naive CEO sees a company just like him bought for Google, bought by Google uh, for you know 15 times revenue. Well, I'm just like them. So therefore, I'm more, it's, it's closeology. Yeah, yeah <laughs> the reality of course, is not the just science like, of closeology. You, <laughs> you do not know how big they were. You do not know their growth rate. You do not know their gross margins. And you do not know how strategic you might have been for them. And, you know, they were the obvious, most strategic buyer. Well, then who's the most obvious strategic buyer for you now that they've been, that Google bought them, <laughs> right? Like, it, it, you kind of have to, I, I spend a lot of time tempering expectations of value. I hear you. Okay. Well, thank, thanks for that because I think for the listeners, it's, it's, it's good to temper expectations as well. Uh, as, as we wrap up here, I want to ask a final, final question for you, and that's just any final thoughts that you have from all the experience you've had for, for CEOs and their management teams when seeking capital or an exit. What's the, you know, what's the message you'd ultimately want to land with them so, uh, so they can do it right? So make sure you uh, understand what the investor or the buyer is looking for. Understand their rationale because you'll waste each other's time if you have not understood what they invest in, you know, what scope, uh, what, what sectors, uh, you know, what size. Similarly, on the buyer side, if you haven't thought of their rationale, if you don't fit their rationale, then you're wasting your time. So you've got to think about your message to all the investors and to the buyers and find the right ones in that respect. The second thing is to be able to tell your story very, very well, both visually and in terms of a, you know, uh, a PowerPoint deck, uh, but also tell your story. When you can sit in front of an investor and tell them why you're winning, why you're differentiated, what is the value proposition, why do customers love you? you know, be able to passionately and uh, uh, expertly tell your story. Uh, uh, that is so crucial to getting uh, investment. And then the last thing I, I alluded to earlier is process. Don't do it one-off. Don't say that particular investor has shown me a lot of love. I'm just going to dance with them. You've got to run a process and keep tension. So you've got to do multiple, decide when you're going to go out and do multiple investors or multiple buyers uh, and talk to them at the same time and drive them towards a timeline that is the same time because that's the only way to create tension mm. and therefore uh, increase your value. Excellent. Thanks for the three points there. And, you know, Brent, it's the depth at which you went in here in, the, in our discussion and, and the, the amount of information you have. I really want to thank you for the time and uh, thank you very much for, for investing time with us. No problem. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.